This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we are looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels. Ben, last time we took a look at Jesus' authority over sin, and now we move into his claim to be God, the great I Am. You've talked a little bit about coming to know Jesus in your college years and through through the influence of some other people, as well as through your mother and, and others along the way. When did you get a, a sense of Jesus' true identity as being God in the flesh? Was that something you knew even before you came to Christ and you sort of said, well, that's how they believe? Or did that come along later? Or just random curveball to start this podcast off. Yeah, I don't... I appreciate that. You know, I love those curveball questions. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there was a specific moment or time uh, for me where that, where I could point to and be like, you know, yes, on July 22nd, 1993 or something like that, to where I came to, to fully recognize uh, the whole of who Christ was. Um, there was some incremental aspects to it uh, being just absolutely captured by the the idea intellectually i guess the idea of justifying grace that god would make a way for us um to be reconciled uh to him that god himself would bear the penalty of our sin that we would experience his embrace and forgiveness that that captured my heart the idea of that captured uh my heart and then also there were i mean there were multiple uh, followers of Christ and, and really through the extravagance of their love toward me, the extravagance of, of their love that I saw just borne out in their own lives with their family and their community. There was a uniqueness to it that, uh, is a, is a shared in a recent sermon. There was a uniqueness to it that defied every stereotype I ever had of Christians. You know, I, with, <laughs> with the whole of, of many non-Christians, you know, saw the Christian community as being a bunch of, uh, is a bunch of hypocrites and they defied all those stereotypes. I, I could not with any kind of intellectual honesty, deny the historicity of Christ's resurrection. But the one thing that I constantly wrestled with was the, the physical bodily resurrection. Um, because I just, you know, for so many years didn't believe in the supernatural. And so I thought, it, you know, I thought the the claims of Christianity themselves to be foolishness, but uh, but yeah, when I got to a point where I couldn't intellectually, with any intellectual honesty, deny the the resurrection of Christ, that was that was when um, it was over for me. You and I have talked a bit about our different path to where we are today from one another, and and how I grew up immersed in the Christian community all of my life, yet. There are some similarities in that it was incremental for me as well. Mm-hmm. And even though as a as a child, a little bitty baby, and all the way through my elementary years and junior high years, that's what we called it back in the day, what middle school and high school and all of it. I was I was in the faith. I was immersed in the faith community all of those years. It was still an incremental growth for me to to grasp the concept that Jesus wasn't a separate being, so to speak, but was God. Mm-hmm. And he is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the Trinity. 
and that Jesus is an equal part of that was the co-creator of the universe and so that's what's a that's what's at play here at the end of John chapter 8 when they're really listening to these things Jesus is talking about his claim to have authority over sin that we looked at last time and now we see the response of the religious community and the religious leaders in Jesus' midst. We're down in John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered Jesus, aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Now, there's a loaded question for you. I don't know the hardest question you've ever gotten as a pastor. Uh, And it's interesting to be claimed to be a Samaritan, which was the half-breed, outsider, unclean, unaccepted person that lived sort of in the heartland of Jewish community and Jewish communities that were all around them, but to also call him demon-possessed. And Jesus flatly answers in verse 49, I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not possessed by a demon. What are you guys thinking about? He said, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Once again, then we see that Jesus is talking about obedience. It's not simply having knowledge of who he is, but it's obedience to the word of Christ in our lives. And he says, if you do this, you'll never see death. They didn't buy it. Verse 52, at this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. You know, I find it interesting that Jesus is continuing to, to go through his life, through his years of ministry on earth, and they just can't see him for who he is. This whole idea that he is God in the flesh was completely rejected by them. In fact, they went the opposite direction and they said, he's a demon. This guy, it, this guy is not sent from God. He's sent from hell itself. Why is it that they missed it so badly? I, th- I think that a, a big piece of that is that they were so ingrained in their nationalistic identity and their religious uh, or nationalistic ideology and religious ideology that they were so ingrained with the the understanding that the messiah would come um and and vanquish the oppressor would get rid of the roman rule and jesus just did not fit the uh you know, Jesus did not fit the framework of who they thought the Messiah was going to be. And so in that, and, and to boot, Jesus is constantly engaged in this back and forth with them. He's constantly engaged in this back and forth with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders where they're trying to look for a means uh, to, to trap him. Um, and Jesus is asking questions uh, of them and pushing back on them. And, and really highlighting their own self-righteousness or their own unright their their lack of righteousness uh, in their lives and you know calling them hypocrites at different points and so there's this back and forth between uh 
between the religious leaders and Jesus. And in that, they're trying to explain away the supernatural that they're seeing. I mean, Jesus is clearly healing people. They recognize and they see that he is healing people. I mean, one of the the, the wildest aspects of this is going to come in uh, maybe the podcast next week. Um, but when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and it makes them want to kill Jesus all the more. And so the only means they have of explaining away uh, the, the supernatural acts is to say, this is born of Satan. He's, he's clearly demon possessed. That's, that's how he, that, that's giving him the power uh, to bring healing uh, to those that he encounters. And so with everything they're seeing, that's their only means, their only way of, uh, that's their only way of explaining things away. That, that's so true. And Jesus doesn't shy away from it. He steps into the pressure circle even more when he, he basically, he, he basically says he's in verse 54, my father, whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. And down in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now this just messed with their heads because Abraham had been around a few thousand years earlier. So they responded, "Uh, dude, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham from a few thousand years ago. Very truly I tell you, verse 58, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. This was a direct claim to be God. It's a reference to the name of God as revealed to Moses. I am who I am. And when Jesus says before Abraham was born, a few thousand years earlier, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am who I am. I am God. They knew exactly what he was saying. So they began this episode by asking him, aren't you demon-possessed? And he ends it by saying, nope, I am God-possessed. I am God in the flesh. They get it. They get this reference fully because in verse 59, remember the beginning of this chapter? It was We talked about it last week. It was the story of the woman caught in adultery and all these guys picked up stones to kill her. Now in verse 59, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. I wonder if it was the same rocks. (laughs) But Jesus, he didn't have anybody to defend him, so Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. He he got away from them. It's interesting, he went into hiding because it wasn't his time. But it was a direct claim to be who he was. You know, in the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis famously talked about the claims of Christ. And one of the things he said was this, and I quote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. End quote. Lewis, I think, C.S. Lewis tapped into something here. Like either Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord of all, or he is an agent on behalf of Satan himself, or he's just crazy glue. He was just a, he was just a, a nut job who called himself God, but wasn't. But you really can't look at the gospel, the life of Jesus we've been through this year, and come away saying that, well, Jesus was a, a good man, a moral man, a prophet, but he, but he was wrong about being the son of God. If he, if he was wrong, he either just like didn't understand he was wrong, or he understood he was wrong and he was lying about it. This, this famous quote has, has been something that has shaped a lot of our thinking, at least a lot of my thinking over the years, that you cannot go halfway in with the gospel. It's, it's all or none, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and really the uniqueness of Jesus' claims about himself uh, undermines, um, undermines any universalistic type thinking. The idea that you can that you would believe in Christ and then say, "Well, there's many paths to God," defies reason, uh, because Christ has said, "I am the way and the truth and the life." And so we can either take Jesus at His word, recognize that He is the one true, only Messiah, or as Lewis says, uh, He's just He's just a crazy man. And so it's one or the other. And I would say it's the one that he clearly claims to be the son of God, God in the flesh, God himself, the I am. And I take him at his word on that. Let's go over to the next page. It's actually John chapter nine. And there's a, we won't be able to cover this verse by verse. It's a, it's 41 verses long. It's the story of Jesus healing a man born blind. Again, I think what's coming into play here is the identity of Christ and the authority he has over over life and death and even who he is, his identity as being God in the flesh. But let's pick it up at chapter 9, John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. We really like to find the root cause of everything, do we? Everything that happens in life, and who can we blame that something bad has happened in life to a person? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or in their sense, bad things do happen to bad people, and let's figure out who was bad. It was either in the womb this guy's parents, or with him, even before he was born? Like, why was he born blind? People really want to know, don't they? Yeah, yeah. When I, when I lived in Dallas, and this is, you know, 20 plus years ago, but I worked briefly at a Christian bookstore, Berean Christian bookstore. And uh, when I say briefly, I worked there for two months, and then I was only working like 10 hours a week. This was the greatest, I mean... I hated that the the store went under, but it did have you know a Christian owned store. They were awfully kind to me, so I I worked there for two months, about ten hours a week, and then when they went out of business, 
um, they gave me two months worth of severance at 40 hours a week. Good deal. And I, I was like, man, this is, this is awesome. Uh, praise be upon you folks. But there was somebody uh, that I worked with at, at the bookstore. The, the bookstore did not sell this book. Um, but somebody came in, uh, a coworker, and she had a book and it was every ailment that you could ever think through. Um, every ailment, every physical disease, condition, whatever it might be. And uh, with, those, uh, with those diseases or those sicknesses or illnesses matched with them were the sins that caused them. And she was a full believer in that. And so, yeah, that, the sentiment still works today. It's a means that some people uh, use to, uh, to make sense of, of the world. The idea that every bad thing uh, we suffer is the result of some besetting sin in our life that we're unwilling uh, to work, to, to, to see, which at the end of the day, it has nothing. That's not Christianity. That's karma, two completely different things. And it cuts against the, the, the word, uh, itself. You know, we see this played out, uh, most, um, uh, most deliberately in the story of Job where Job's friends show up as he's suffering. And we know from the early chapters of Job that, God has allowed him to experience this suffering, uh, not, not because of some sort of unrighteousness uh, in his life, but God's allowing him to experience the suffering. His friends show up for seven days, they're quiet, and then immediately they, they start uh, to accuse Job, basically saying, what, what did you do, man? You did something because you've endured an astronomical amount of su suffering, so you've done something and those guys pretending to speak for God are judging Job um, because of his sickness, because of the, all the ailments and the suffering that he had uh, endured. And uh, that, you know, sadly, that's just the way some folks want to make sense of the world. It was 50 years ago this week that my brother was killed in an auto accident. I was 11 years old, little boy, when my 18-year-old, almost 19-year-old brother was killed in an accident 50 years ago. And I remember wanting to find the answer why. Mm -hmm. Why him? Why us? Why our family? Why me? And I, I think there is a longing in humans to understand the answer to that question. Why did this happen? The, I guess the end of it for me, well, the pathway to the end was a little bit like, God, why didn't you stop this? Mm -hmm. Why didn't you veer their vehicle so that it did not hit the tree? There is a, I think there's a longing in us to figure out the answer to the question and sometimes it's maybe easier to attribute it to karma, bad luck, being a bad person. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, even like, well, if you're living right, then the world's going to come at you and persecute, Satan's going to get you. Like there, We have all these different angles on it. And I, I don't know. I mean, Jesus, Jesus gives an answer to here. I mean, he, he says it in... 
Mm-hmm. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's, that's not an overly satisfactory answer for me, I've got to be honest with you, because it still doesn't get the, get the root of the pain that people have. And this man had to be blind for a long time. He was now a full-grown man, so it had to be decades at least. It's a challenging question. I think that we have to wrestle with. Nonetheless, this man was healed by Jesus. We won't go into the whole story. I'll let you read it for yourself there in John chapter 9. He was healed by Jesus. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, again, they don't like the fact that he was healed. He was healed especially on a Sabbath day. So in, down in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. That is, Jesus is not from God. We've just been having this debate over his identity. They went on to say, others said, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were debating, they were divided. They couldn't, they were arguing, like, is Jesus from God or is he not from God? How could he do these things if he weren't? But why would he do them if he did it on a Sabbath? They couldn't figure out who he was. And I, and down in verse 24, they, they move toward, they say, we know. This man is a sinner, and I love the response oh of the gosh, blind yeah. guy. Isn't that great? The, the, yeah, these three verses are so awesome. <laughs> yeah, take me through those. Yeah, the, the blind guy replies. He says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How, how did he uh, open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And this is my favorite line because I can just imagine at this point their heads exploded because the blind man says, he's like, do you want to become his disciple uh, too? Isn't that great? <laughs> I love it. I love it. The answer to that was no because <laughs> they got super mad. They hurled insults at him, it says, and they ended up kicking him out of church. This guy waited his whole life to be able to, to go to the temple, go to the synagogue, go, go worship, be able to see and fully engage in worship. And now he could see and he got booted out of church right away. He got excommunicated from, from them because they, they told him down in verse 34, they answered the initial question and they said, you were steeped in sin at birth. Just the opposite of the answer Jesus gave. It wasn't because of his sin, wasn't because of his parents' sin. They answered it. You were steeped in sin. You were a sinner. And that's why you were born blind. And how dare you lecture us? It's a, it's a challenge for us to embrace Jesus fully for who he is and how he sees us, how he sees people around us, and how he wants them to have real sight or even insight that this man has. And how this man, this man who'd been blind all his life, could see Jesus much more clearly than the religious leaders could ever, ever see him. It's down in verse 35. We wrap it up. Down in verse 35 of John chapter 9, Jesus heard that they had thrown the poor guy out. And when Jesus found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? A title he used for himself all kinds of ramifications of that title. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, 
You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. He did all this right as the Pharisees were watching, because the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Is that what you're saying? Jesus said, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, you're watching this whole thing play out right in front of you, and you know, you know what you have done. You know what you're witnessing. As you mentioned earlier, Ben, the miracles, the healings, the teachings, all that Jesus had done, and they still refused to believe that he was God in the flesh. But this guy, this guy had experienced the power of God, and so he was a believer. Final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess a, a final thought, and, and again, it's the, uh, as those who have experienced, if we, again, if we've claimed Christ as Savior, if we've come to receive him, as Savior, the, the call upon our lives is to be faithful to Him in all things. And so to yield ourselves uh, under the authority of His Word. And, uh, and again, one of the, the big issues that we see with the Pharisees is how their nationalistic and, and political ideologies, their religious ideologies, the, the fact that they've you know, added law upon law, which has led to this disposition of self-righteousness, which has blinded them uh, to Christ. In our, in our own day, one of the biggest struggles we have, especially with you know, the political tensions that exist in, in our own country, is that there is such a temptation, and maybe one that we don't oftentimes recognize in ourselves, but there is this temptation to allow cultural ideology or political ideology to blind us to the fullness of Christ. Um, to where our identities have become so locked in how we identify culturally uh, as progressive or conservative or politically that we are blind uh, ultimately uh, to the full picture of Christ as revealed in Scripture. Yeah, we've talked just a bit about the fact that we have two interns from Burundi, Africa, with us this summer, and I've had a few little conversations with them about these things. They can't tell the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. We're all just Americans, which is otherworldly compared to where they grew up in Burundi. And we often like to grab a hold of those differences. But I think we, when we do so, that becomes the, the lenses, the glasses that we put on mm-hmm. through which we see the rest of the world, even through which we see our faith. And that's a, a dangerous way to look at life. Well, thanks for listening today, folks. In episode 37, we will look at some life and death issues that arise when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. If you want to jump in deeper, folks, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. Until next time, may God bless. Thank you.